0: Well, good afternoon everyone, and welcome to another event of the OTGR seminar series. I will not repeat my usual caveat of who we are, and uh, what well, we do, because I see the many of you are in your faces. I just want to remind you that we have opened many positions in our executive committee, and the call for applications is online, have a look at our website. We have many exciting opportunities. If you would like to be involved more in our work, uh, among the positions that are currently open, we have the student chairperson, the admin manager, the events manager, uh, the chief editor, and all the editorial team. So, six to eight positions uh, in the total work that we are doing for JusticeInfo.net. Uh, the applications uh, process is open until the 17th of November. So, this Friday, uh, uh, so please have a look at our website again: um, law.ox.ac uk You should know that by now. And If you have any questions, do not hesitate to, to approach us, here, even after the talk or later on, if you want to drop me an email. Um, but uh, without further ado, let's move on to today's presentation. We are really excited to have with us uh, Rebecca Friedman, who is lecturer uh, at King's College London in Gender and International Relations. Um, Her research focuses on the intersection between transitional justice, peace building, gender, memory and reconciliation. She is the co-editor of a 2015 uh, collective volume called Evaluating Transitional Justice, Accountability and Peacebuilding in Post-Conflict Sierra Leone. Uh, She is the former editor of Millennium Journal of International Studies, and currently, she is carrying on an ECSC funded research project on gender ma- marginalization and recovery titled Hidden Boxes." If you want to tell us something about it, I'm sure that we'd be really curious about it. But uh, today's presentation concerns the research that she conducted in, in, in the field, specifically on formal and informal transitional justice processes uh, in Sierra Leone, Peru, Colombia, and Sri Lanka. The product of this research uh was this uh, book that was published only in august of this year by CUP called Competing Memories, Truth and Reconciliation in Sierra Leone and Peru. And I'm sure we will hear much more about this so without further ado please join me in thanking our guests today
1: thank you very much. So thanks for coming and thank you Daniel for the introduction. Um, as, um, so, so the, presentation today will focus um, just on my earlier research, which uh, culminated in this book, um, *Competing Memories, Truth and Reconciliation in Sierra Leone, Peru, and we do have some flyers here from the publishers, if people wonder, um, are interested in um, getting it at a discounted cost. Um, and so, so my comments today will, will focus on this book, and actually I was telling Daniel that this is my second time presenting um, for... Um, OTJR. The first time was I think in um, in 2009 or 10 when I wasn't doing my PhD and I just finished the field research on Sierra Leone. So this was in the very early stages and I gave a presentation and just come back from Sierra Leone and gave a presentation then, uh, which Phil Clark hosted. Um, And so now um, I'm still very much working on the same areas. the intersection of transitional justice, peace-building, and reconciliation, and protracted social conflicts. Um, I'm focusing uh, in the ESRC project that I'm doing now, it's a two-year pro- project. Um, I'm focusing um, more on gender and gendered experiences of uh, marginalization, recovery, particularly in contexts context of um, militarization. Um, so, and, and there I've also done research in um, Sri Lanka and Colombia, um, and I've just come back from, from from both, so I'd be happy to talk about that in the question and answer. But I'll I'll restrict my comments today um, to Sierra Leone, Peru, and and to the general themes that that run through all of the research. Um, so I think the the two main um, questions um, underlying this this book and the book which came out of my PhD. Um, firstly an interest in context, uh, the context of transitional justice, and specifically um, how do contextual differences shape both transitional justice institutions themselves, um, but also their their broader local reception, so local experiences of transitional justice. Um, And the second is, the second broader interest in the book is on impact and Really taking a step backwards, um, how do we assess impact and understand impact? So, of course, impact is probably what most of us are interested in. Um, m- maybe I think it, or, or it's most of the audience today in law or yeah, mixed. 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 Yeah. So, I think well, so some of us are more interested in the institutions themselves and the intricacies of the institutions and the law. But I think uh, for me, it was very much um, the kind of the, long-term impact and also the politics surrounding these institutions. So how do you assess impact? Um, What should the objectives of these processes be? And I was especially interested in reconciliation. So, reconciliation um, probably arguably one of the most important outcomes, especially as I'll talk about shortly with context. We've looked more and more at transitional justice in very complex protracted conflicts. Um, But do they actually achieve reconciliation and what do we understand by reconciliation so I think to begin with the first uh, context uh, transitional justice processes at least in kind of the in its globalized form as a global epistemic set of processes and, and knowledge base and um, began in the Cold War um, in, in what we often refer to as third wave transitions to democracy so in South America often Um, cases like Argentina or Uruguay, Um, and they often examine very specific periods of violence, um, usually uh, um, ideologically motivated violence, and they often focused on on particularly truth commissions, which I've focused on a lot in my research, Um, state-sponsored violence against political dissidents. So in Argentina, for instance, one of the most famous early truth commissions, um, the classic victim was a prisoner of conscience, so a person persecuted for or so her peaceful um, p- political beliefs, um, and um, truth commissions and transitional justice processes in general were very much tied to democratization, to the establishment or reestablishment of human rights, to countering impunity, and they often had a strong degree therefore of civil society backing in these contexts. So I think. Very important. Um, I think in recent years, the post Cold War period um, especially, we've seen um, a shift of transitional justice to a um, much wider set of contexts. So, civil wars, protracted social conflicts, uh, contexts where there are often multiple sides. Um, so, um, Sierra Leone, Peru, we have um, state actors committing violence, military, but also um, non state actors, large scale insurgency groups, um, even smaller scale peasant patrols and militias. So, civilians are participating in violence to a greater and greater degree. Um, Complex categories of victims, so um, large scale experiences of sexual violence, for instance. Um, use of child soldiers, some more complex categories of perpetrators as well. Um, and also another change, um, that these are conflicts where the international community has become more and more involved. Um, so this started already um, in the 90s. I think there was um, more of an opportunity for cooperation with the end of the Cold War. So truth commissions in Central America and El Salvador and Guatemala for instance were run wholly by Um, international agents by the UN. Um, The context that I've looked at, uh, Sierra Leone and Peru are, 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 Sierra Leone in particular, more hybrid in some senses, so there's international, national cooperation, but still quite different than the earlier South American context. So there's strong global influence in running and establishing and setting up up transitional justice processes and funding them, Um, but also Um, A very different global normative context, so a a way of doing things, a set of expectations. Um, So strong senses of how things should be done. I think um, this applies particularly to legal institutions, but also increasingly to what had previously been considered informal processes like truth commissions. So I think um, with this shift to increasingly complex contexts, as well as increasing international global involvement Um, we've also seen more critical reflection both among scholars and practitioners um, in transitional justice we've seen the establishment of global institutions um, to study uh, transitional justice and and promote it around the world but also a critical turn among academics who um, raise problems with this kind of um, global promotion of certain objectives and, and, and means. Um, There's been, so in some ways there's been um, a a more reflexive turn as well, and and this is something I want to speak about today. There's been an emphasis on hybridity, so global local cooperation as well as um, uh, respect of not just global formal institutions but also local informal practices and customs and traditions, uh, an interest in holistic justice. So multiple parallel tracks of transitional justice, there isn't just uh, one right or wrong way, um, but we should have many parallel mechanisms as, at once. And this is again, in some ways, um, uh, uh, this is in some ways a contrast to the earlier experiences and even in Latin, in Latin America where we had truth commissions as the main model of transitional justice, but I think importantly, even, even where it was the... Only mechanism at the time, um, these truth commissions were always set up, um, really uh, in the sh- shadow of criminal trials as a second-best alternative. So where tr- criminal trials were considered to be too contentious or too destabilizing, um, truth commissions were set up, but very much in the hope that these commissions would then lead to trials later on. Um, and so, so with a holistic turn, um, and even earlier with. Uh, high-profile truth commissions, for instance, in South Africa. um, There was more of an emphasis on restorative justice alongside retributive justice, and that there are different forms of justice, and and one may not be superior to another. And there's also, in recent years, I think something very important for my research uh, and and presentation today, an interest in, it's becoming too many words and jargon, but uh, these are the terms, transformative justice. So transformative justice, importantly meant to both be transformative in terms of addressing and transforming the root causes of conflict, um, but also um, transform ways of, inter- ways of um, interacting, ways of behaving, um, be participatory in orientation, involve, um, contribute to democratization. So transitional justice should be set up and run in a way that contributes to um, democratization, um, uh, to promoting active citizenship, um, to engaging stakeholders in a much more long-term sense. So I think um, one of the starting points of the research is uh, there is this very strong sense of uh, normative reflection, normative reorientation of what transitional justice should do, um, especially given earlier criticisms of previous transitional justice processes and in light of the very complex context that these institutions are set up in today. um, But how do they actually do this and and can they do this? Um, A lot of the theoretical work has very much remained theoretical, has has been kind of a normative reorientation. There hasn't been much examination practice of what transformative justice actually means, um, how it can be implemented. Um, so that's something I very much try to look at in the book. Um, and, and, the, and the second broader rationale, as I mentioned already, is, um, is what, what I'm personally very interested in is, is impact and, and, and reconciliation. So I've already, I think, um, in collaborative work, my, the other book that Daniel mentioned um, looked at impact in Sierra Leone, and there's many, very many different ways of looking at impact with transitional justice. So we can um, look at impact um, on the individual level, so in in terms of the victims and perpetrators, and um, perhaps how they interact with each other, or what they get out of these processes. Or we can look at large-scale impact in terms of um, institutional bodies, or, or rule of law, or number of trials. So many different ways of looking at impact, or slow, gradual, normative change over time. Um, with reconciliation, um, a lot of the recent work on impact hasn't really looked very much on reconciliation. So there's, there's um, large ethnographic scholarship, um, particularly in um, anthropology, and um, that, that looks at um, the individual level, so it looks at reconciliation in terms of individual perceptions in terms of victims and perpetrators, perhaps reconciling or um, individual healing. Um, there's not a lot of work on the societal level of, rec- of reconciliation and or even understanding of what reconciliation can mean beyond, um, beyond individual relationships. And I think this again um, is important where, um, Truth Commission, where we have informal mechanisms um, that often work at the community level um, but truth commissions are, are and shorter-term processes um, and, um, and, and work very much on the societal level. And, and so there's been very little study of what societal reconciliation actually means and, and whether transitional justice institutions have any impact um, in this sphere or not. Um, and I think part of the problem also is, is the history of truth commissions. Um, so truth commissions from any transitional justice institution, I think, have um, advanced the largest um, interest in reconciliation, um, particularly the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. First, it was the first truth commission that to really, or trans, uh, large-scale transitional justice institution to tie itself to reconciliation as an end goal. Um, But this was, in some ways, a very unique experience and advanced a particular conception of reconciliation, especially where tied to transitional justice, which is focused on a very participatory model of transitional justice and a testimonial model um, linked in this context very much to um, religious tropes of, in this context, Christian religious themes of confession and contrition. And um, and advanced an understanding of reconciliation um, that was very ambitious in many ways, that was tied to the transformation of individual viewpoints. So reconciliation occurs to the extent that um, individual perceptions change. So there's um, forgiveness on the part of victims or healing or um, contrition on the part of perpetrators. Um, And and so the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission was... um, for sometime heralded as a very innovative model and for many a success story, but then also later severely criticized um, because it was tied to these, partly because it was tied to these um, very ambitious ends. And so this is something I think also that needs to be interrogated in much more detail Um, on how should we actually understand reconciliation? Um, Are there um, other understandings and levels of reconciliation? And um, how can we look at them in relation to Um, transitional justice and peace-building processes. So the the cases in in the book, as I've mentioned already, um, Peru and Sierra Leone, um, so for me it was interesting cross-regional comparison. Um, Of course, there are many differences in the cases which we can talk about, but um, also interesting parallels, um, despite their differences. um, So two... Um, Long-term and complex protracted social conflicts um, with multiple actors, so uh, state or military violence, um, violence committed by non-state insurgency groups, the Shining Path principally in in Peru, um, and the Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone, um, as well as communal violence, so civil defense forces set up um, at the communal level um, to defend villages against um, violence from both of these actors um, that that ended up committing um, large-scale violence themselves. Uh, There were messy conflicts, there were switching sides, Um, there was uh, sometimes collaboration between the military and and the Revolutionary United Front in particular in in Sierra Leone, Uh, child soldiers in both cases, um, widespread sexual violence, um, forced conscription of children. Um, Also very uneven, and I think this is important, very uneven experiences of violence. So violence that was concentrated in remote and very poor areas of each country. Um, So in Peru, it was in the rural hinterlands, um, largely indigenous areas, um, areas where the victims came from a mainly illiterate peasant, uh, very poor demographic. and in both cases, um, many of the ex-combatants so came from marginalized social backgrounds, marginalized youth. Um, and cases where um, the middle classes in the capital cities were um, sheltered from some of the worst experiences of violence. So they've mainly experienced insurgency violence, which um, was serious in, in its own right, but, but um, they were mainly sheltered from state violence, from military violence. and. Um, which, and, and, and some of the most egregious human rights abuses, large-scale disappearances in Peru. Um, they're both conflicts where um, there are long histories of ma- state neglect and marginalization that, um, that fueled the conflict in many ways and, and that um, the insurgency is politicized. So, and, and there, there was an ethnicity and um, race played a role, um, particularly in Peru, so there wasn't a strict ethnic conflict. Um, the Shining Path recruited from universities throughout the country, and um, its leader um, was what was a, from European descent, but um, a lot of the insurgents were indigenous, and, and it certainly polit- the politicized the grievances of the indigenous in the country, so there was an important ethnic-slash-racial factor as well. Um, The the cases, transitional justice institutions in both cases, were set up in similar time periods, uh, one year apart. Um, And there's an emphasis very much in both cases on um, hybridity, as well as um, transformative justice. So in Sierra Leone, we can see this um, much more visibly. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, as well as the special court, were hybrid institutions. They were set up by the UN, but had a mix of international domestic staff. Um, The Peru were domestic processes, but the Inter-American Court was heavily involved in in trials, and and even though the Truth Commission was staffed by Peruvians, it spent a year and a half bringing over commissioners from other contexts and and consulting with them, um, as well as international advisors. So it was uh, very much um, taking taking insights and lessons from other cases and applying them um, in its own context. Um, they're both two-track approaches, which is probably interesting for the lawyers in the, in the room. Um, so there are cases where truth commissions were set up alongside trials. Um, and we won't, don't have time to get into this, but in the Q&A, if, you're, if, if anyone wants to follow up. Um, so we're not harmonious relationships. Um, so again, this is we can see this is an interesting case implementing a lot of the recent... Shifts in thinking and practice, but um, doesn't work very well. Um, both the Peruvian and Sierra Leonean truth commissions had very different relationships with criminal courts. Um, the Peruvian truth commission sought to um, contributed to trials directly, so it used the information for trials and made recommendations for trials. While the um, Sierra Leonean truth commission um, did not do this and had a very strained relationship with the Special Court of Sierra Leone, but um, importantly I think for our purposes both were set up alongside trials and this affected how the Truth Commissions um, did their work and how they were perceived locally. Um, So I think in in both cases, the the way I approached both cases also, I um, spent time, I divided my time in different areas of the country. Um, this was very much a qualitative more interpretive research project. Um, I divided my time between capital cities where I spoke mainly to practitioners, those involved in transitional justice institutions to try to understand how these institutions made decisions, how they felt the context enabled or constrained them but then I think um, even more of my time I spent in um, the affected areas and spoke to stakeholders and participants in these institutions so in, in in Peru, this was Ayacucho, um, where the conflict started, and most of the victims came from. In Sierra Leone, I spent time in Kaylan, um, on the Liberian border, where the Revolutionary United Front originated, um, and also very both long-time neglected, but also war-affected area. And so I spoke to both victims and ex-combatants and and general civil society as well, so to see how community organizations today uh, feel about these processes. Um, And I looked at both formal and informal mechanisms, so truth commissions, as well as um, ongoing informal mechanisms, and in Peru I looked more at community memory projects and initiatives, and in Sierra Leone more at um, community reconciliation processes, which are ongoing. Um, And I think that the reason for this is is something we can again talk about, this is a more unexpected difference that came out, um, that despite that in the truth commissions in both cases um, set themselves up in fairly similar ways. There was much more of a focus in Sierra Leone um, on reconciliation and Peru on on memory and the actual truth that the commission is promoting. And this is what continues to be contested. Um, so I think um, the, from a comparative um, viewpoint, um, so there are interesting parallels in terms of the the cases themselves and what I was looking for, Um, but um, there's also important and interesting differences um, between the cases and um, especially as I started doing the research. Um, I think um, what's interesting is that both truth commissions took a conscious made a conscious decision to um, really Promote transformative justice and contribute to conflict transformation. So they sought to be highly participatory, to set themselves up in different parts of the country and really reach out to affected populations, Um, and they sought to um, address root causes in each case. Um, And and this varied according to the conflict, of course. So in Sierra Leone, where, um, as I've already said, um, marginalized youth uh, formed the majority of ex-combatants, and some even refer to the Sierra Leonean conflict as a large-scale youth uprising. So this is um, there is a long-term kind of fracture of intergenerational relationships, and 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 um, kind of an explosion, especially in the universities of Sierra Leone, of um, of frustrated expectations and um, marginalized youth. The Truth Commission focused heavily on, on youth, engaging youth, um, engaging ex-combatant youth and, and child soldiers. Um, 30% of the testimonies in Sierra Leone came from ex-combatants, so higher than at any other Truth Commission. Um, Peru, um, where the kind of conflict had, um, had really targeted the indigenous, um, and there had been um, the Truth Commission. Um, really prioritized cultural pluralism, so highlight, and reaching out to victims and, and promoting their experiences, and um, also in um, in generating state accountability and countering impunity. And so um, the main stakeholders for the Peruvian Truth Commission had, were always from the start victims, um, and and countering their long-term marginalization and invisibility, so especially um, indigenous victims. Um, but I think that said, um, both truth commissions in some ways were very much hybrid. So they both started with um, large, with ambitious, inclusive aims. So they wanted to engage people on all sides of the conflict, um, both victims and ex-combatants, so, so um, non-state insurgency groups as well. Um, they also wanted to contribute to large-scale. Um, accountability, um, criminal justice, in the Peruvian case. And so one of the things that I am concerned with in the book is, um, so especially my background more in conflict and conflict war studies, um, as well as um, peace-building transitional justice, Um, we step back and look at these cases from a conflict studies perspective, um, I think transitional justice is divided. Um, conflict studies perhaps even more, so there are many different interpretations of what caused of the root causes of conflicts in each case. The um, so Sierra Leone one um, is one of the um, often frequently cited cases for the, perhaps um, the older greed versus grievance debate um, that where um, this conflict driven by uh, Kind of structural causes of the political economy, or um, is it opportunistic, or is it dri- driven, um, if you look at the micro level, or take a psychosocial lens by deep-rooted individual grievances. Um, we've had kind of similar um, differences in, in, in the Peruvian literature, um, largely Peruvian, more ethnographically oriented literature focuses very much on the shining path almost as a political religion. Um, it it's almost cult-like in some ways. It provides a home for a disaffected youth. Um, it, it provides an identity versus the literature that looks at kind of the coca, COCA structures and, and the economy of violence. Um, I think transitional justice and and conflict studies tend to be very atomized from each other. And and so there's there's an emphasis on transformative justice and transforming root causes of conflict. It was never very clear in either commission what the root causes of conflict were. Um, Sometimes they're implicitly there. So giving marginalized youth a voice in Sierra Leone, important objective. Um, But I think what what starts to emerge is that perhaps there's... in terms of addressing these different understandings of conflict, um, that there are tensions between the two. Um, there are tensions between an inclusive approach that tries to provide a platform to all sides to testify and really understand their micro-level motivations, versus one that can lead to large-scale structural change that can, which depend with institutional reform and development, um, which requires um, both social solidarity and middle class support, but also um, political support, and government support. Um, you can really see this in the case of the Peruvian Truth Commission, so it began very ambitiously, um, soon became a highly criticized commission, so um, even giving, involving the Shining Path at all um, was seen as legitimizing the Shining Path. Um, contributing to criminal trials of military members made it anti-military, but uh, but then I think um, where the Truth Commission did have, um, did engage with the military became very, it became criticized very quickly in affected areas especially um, where where a lot of the, in Ayacucho and and areas where the military had um, committed very heavy-handed violence. So what the Truth Commission ended up doing is, um, and this was very ad hoc and, and, um, and, and figured it out as it went along, is try to balance these different objectives and tiptoe around in a sense. So the Truth Commission really encouraged the Shining Path to testify, um, but only on the condition that the Shining Path did what they call um, auto-criticize, so renounce its role in the movement and also um, the movement itself. Um, so that's what militants would have to do. Um, so the Shining Path completely refused to do this. So the leadership took a decision that um, they should not do this. Um, this. Peru had multiple non-state actors. It also had the Tupac Amaru movement, and the Tupac Amaru movement was willing to do this, and they did participate in hearings, but they were a much smaller group and considered generally um, not as extreme, not as violent, the Shining Path. So the um, military also refused to testify. Um, especially where the Truth Commission um, contributed to criminal trials. And so I think um, over time, what the Truth Commission, where it ended up focusing most of its work was on victims, um, gathering victim testimony and exposing state violence. Um, and there it did make a difference, so victims much more in the public eye, and there's um, the Truth Commission was able to counter impunity in many ways. It led to... It provided information, made recommendations that led to hundreds of trials of high-ranking military members. Um, but this is very much um, what some, one of my interviewees um, in, in the book referred to as a reconciliation without belligerence. Um, so this is a victim's commission um, where where chief protagonists in the conflict were largely invisible. And um, I, we can you can agree or disagree with this kind of approach, but if, if one of the Um, If if one of the objectives is to have an inclusive process that exposes also these micro level motivations and um, then Then this was then this is then this is where the truth commission was very limited Um, Sierra Leone in other extreme in many ways, so the Sierra Leonean truth commission um, Was able to generate a remarkable level of ex-combatant participation um, but uh, victims feel very, ten, tend to feel very marginalized from the reconciliation in Sierra Leone. And um, in some ways, I think one of the things I argue in the book is that the Sierra Leonean Truth Commission almost had to, um, worked extra hard to counter the, the special court of Sierra Leone, which was set up by, by, by also by the UN um, soon after the Truth Commission had been established. Um, There's such a fear that ex-combatants wouldn't testify because they'd be afraid of self-incrimination despite attempts by the special court to counter these fears to be fair, but but still there's uh, the truth commission had been established on a guarantee of general amnesty and committed to a non-punitive process Um, and so it consistently tried to reassure ex-combatants that it was not linked to the special court, that um, we're all equally guilty, we're all equally victimized, and so one of the criticisms um, I heard frequently from victims, but I think um, also those who are more engaged with a kind of overall message of the Truth Commission in Sierra Leone, is that um, this was much less critical process, and, and, it was, and it was a process focused more on ex-combatants and, um, and, and and helping them with their transition than um, a critical and nuanced examination of the past and, and, and their own role in this violence as well as them um, um, and that um, and there was much less focused on victims and victims tend to still be um, very marginalized in Sierra Leone and, and quite invisible and um, and I think there, there are of course contextual reasons for this so in Sierra Leone um, the ex-combatants, both the youth, young ex-combatants, in particular, they pose a future threat to the country. So they, they, have the potential to destabilize the country if they're not reintegrated. Um, there's also, I found a great deal of sympathy for them in this context. So some, many of them were forcibly recruited in terrible conditions and drugs. So there's, and there's a real willingness in Sierra Leone, and I think this is beyond the scope of this of the research. So just. Uh, but, but there was a real willingness in Sierra Leone to also engage with them and a more forgiving disposition to them, much more than I found in Peru. Um, but, but again, um, I, I think that huge amounts of bitterness um, among victims. So in the book I discuss trade-offs between what I refer to as a more inclusive approach versus a more human rights-based approach, and um, micro and macro understandings of, of conflict transformation. Um, Beyond this, however, there were similar um, experiences in terms of um, some of the more long-term experiences of transitional justice in each case. Um, There was a huge amount of um, frustrated expectations and um, particularly over reparatory justice, so reparations and um, the implementation of the Truth Commission's um, recommendations and reforms. And this was very sad in both cases, so people who testified in front of the Truth Commission felt betrayed later on, felt highly resentful, um, especially where victims came from a poor and and marginalized demographic in the first place. Uh, There are ugly politics of victimization between victims, who is a victim, who is eligible to what kind of reparations and shaming of victims, um, and between stakeholders, as I've already mentioned. So um, victims in Sierra Leone are often... Scathing about the ex combatants and, and how they've benefited from this process, and what they call a one stop approach to reconciliation. You come, you tell your story, you go. Um, so, so, I think um, similar, very similar challenges and follow up, and we see this in the South African Truth Commission still to this day victims complaining about the lack of reparatory justice. And this is, I think, a very important area. So, truth commissions, they're high profile, they raise expectations. Um, they make recommendations, and they give people a voice, but then they also um, expose people, and, and they expect something in return. And, and so, um, especially where truth commissions are meant to contribute to civic nation-building and participatory democracy, um, I think it's an enormous failing, and something that requires um, much more thought. Um, that said, also... Very interested in the book in reconciliation, how we understand reconciliation. And I became quite interested in the indirect effects of transitional justice. So um, I think the South African model, a lot of the work was focused on what's the direct on the direct impact of Truth commissions. So do they change people's viewpoints. Is there a homogenization of viewpoints? Do people agree with the Truth Commission's narrative or not? So James Gibson has done a lot of work on this. Um, um, but I think, so I found, uh, it's not where I focused most of my energy, but it's also, I think you can quite easily tell it's not the case in both cases, um, in Peru especially, well, for different reasons, in Sierra Leone, because few people have read the Truth Commission's report, um, few people were ever exposed to its findings, uh, major criticism again, um, in, in Peru, especially where the Truth Commission's are often based more in the capital cities, and there's, um, and war affected, affected populations tend to be in remote and rural areas. In Peru, um, the Truth Commission has generated enormous controversy in terms of its findings. Um, so sometimes because people have read the report or sometimes they have just been exposed to the main themes of its findings. Um, but what we've seen in Peru is a very contentious and, and um, polarized politics of memory that continues to this day. Um, the truth commissioners actually say that um, the fact that all sides criticize the truth commission of being biased against them shows that the truth commission has actually done its work well so if, if, if everyone thinks that we're, we're against them then we can't be biased but um, the truth commission has been accused of being um, anti-military, pro-military, pro-shining path um, elitist uh, so um, that it's um, male-dominated, um, so many different criticisms. But I think what's most interesting is that um, the Truth Commission's, the, the, the historical memory that it generated, has been heavily disputed, um, both by victims, organizations, in affected areas who argue that its work is unfinished, that numbers of victims should actually be much, much higher, or numbers of um, military-caused deaths um, but also the military has disputed the truth commission. So just a few years ago, um, or 2012, uh, while I was there, the military, um, eleven or twelve, the military released its counter-truth commission report, um, and so it was uh, hundreds of pages where it was setting out its claims and and its, um, and, and justifying the way it behaved in the. Peruvian armed conflict and um, disputing the numbers and, and giving the military version of events and giving the military a voice. And so what's interesting is this is not um, really a dialogue. So these sides aren't talking to each other. They're not necessarily, well, I think the military did read the Truth Commission's report, but the Truth Commissioners um, are, uh, uh, I think a lot of the human rights organizations and, and, and the Truth Commission um, not give much weight to the military report, it sees this as as justifying itself. But I think what's interesting is that that a certain process has unfolded, um, a certain normative and discursive process um, through which the actors engaged are are channeling their their grievances and demands, through which a, a certain common language which they're using to justify their actions as well as make their demands for victims and it's absorbing conflict um, into nonviolent political channels. And, and so I think there's a huge interest in memory now in Peru, um, also at the communal level, so there's lots of counter-memory and um, people who feel that the Truth Commission didn't represent them and they want their own voice. Um, but this enormous memory boom um, and also a certain human rights type language that, that even the actors in the conflict now use to, uh, to um, tell their stories and, and, and a sense that Stories should be told, and and that um, account- that there should be some kind of public accountability in uh, accountability in the public sphere. And this is very much um, this is a big contrast to what existed before, where victims had been invisible for so long, and there was very little awareness of state violence and high degrees of impunity. So I refer to this in the book as procedural reconciliation. It's a shared process, a shared way of doing things, and it's a normative and discursive process. And it doesn't lead to one unanimous end result, so we can't look at it as linear so much, and and it doesn't try to achieve homogeneity. So the actors probably won't ever agree on what happened in this conflict. Um, They may agree to certain kind of a, a few comment. they may agree that there was violence against civilians and that this was wrong, but they won't agree on um, why, wh- whether it was justified in some cases or not. Um, but there's a certain process in place um, for talking about it. And and, and I think, and interestingly, I argue that actually um, there's, a, there's not a linear transition from conflict to um, healing and, and, and forgiveness and, and very ambitious reconciliation, conflict and reconciliation can coexist. In fact, conflict often drives this procedural reconciliation because it's a lack of agreement over the past, and ongoing conflict that fuels this procedural reconciliation, that fuels the interest in debating the past and delving into the past and pursuing the demands generated by the past. Um, so it's a, it's a um, it, it's it's a conflict fueled process, but it's it's a nonviolent process, and I think um, and it can lead to deeper forms of interaction over time. So and, and this is one of the kind of I think conceptual um, arguments in the book that there are many levels of reconciliation, and, and and we should look at the relationship of conflict and and reconciliation differently. And I think. Some of us would agree that post conflict itself is a misnomer, so it can be post war, but um, conflict continues and, and there's a, not a neat transition from um, from conflict and violence to peace. So, h- how am I doing time wise? Should I wrap it up? Five minutes? Five minutes? Okay. So, um, and I think so. looking at the cases again quickly, um, Peru, what I found was um, that the civil society victims and combatants were much more focused on the truth-seeking aspect of the Peruvian Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so they disputed its findings, they were interested in alternative memories, alternative voices. Um, And um, even if it was critical engagement, um, I argue in the long run, procedural reconciliation in this case actually did strengthen democracy, because it um, it, it absorbed conflict into nonviolence channels, and, and, it, and it reinforced democratic channels. So victims, even um, victims groups, are very focused on the capital now to make their demands, and they often use the framework of the truth commission also to mobilize and petition. Uh, in Sierra Leone, I found this less. Uh, Sierra Leone, um, the Sierra Leone's findings were much less disputed, um, sometimes disputed by Sierra Leonean academics, but. Um, much less by victims and ex-combatants. Um, we have the opposite um, problem, if you see it as a problem, where, where the Truth Commission's findings um, weren't very accessible, as I said, and and, and um, weren't well-known. Um, what the Truth Commission and the special court, the International Tribu- Tribunal established in parallel, did do, however, is generate a critical discussion about ownership and transitional justice and... The fact that these processes were so internationalized um, generated a lot of criticism. um, That they didn't, so many felt they, many Sierra Leoneans felt they didn't sufficiently work through Sierra Leonean traditions. Um, They didn't, there was a superficial partnership with Sierra Leonean civil society, that international agents were not sufficiently committed. They came, they set up these institutions, but they didn't spend enough time there and they left soon after the commission, soon after these institutions were finished, that they were much too focused on the capital and they created new elites and, and they didn't show enough um, respect to local processes and values and traditions and spend enough time in affected rural areas. And this was even more sensitive where um, the internet, external Given um external responsibility for this conflict and, and and Sierra Leone's even pre-conflict pre-civil war history with um, colonialism and um, slave trade and uh, the diamond industry, so many very difficult experiences with um, with uh, international actors. Um, so many so what happened in Sierra Leone, which I find interesting, is that um, actors who were at some stage, affiliated with these formal transitional justice institutions, and you can see this in particular with the Sierra Leonean Truth and Reconciliation Commission and um, Fumble Talk, which is an ongoing um, local community reconciliation project. Um, the rifts emerged between um, some of the Sierra Leonean um, staff and 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 the institutions. Um, Fumble Talk is an interesting example. So its founder split off later; he was on the. Um, working group for the Sierra Leonean Truth and Reconciliation Commission it grew frustrated with the process and started Fumble Talk as a community reconciliation um, a project that, sh- that was an alternative to um, formal globalized transitional justice. Uh, and this organization is still active today. Um, I think what's interesting is it, we can see it as an alternative, um, as, as the organization does, but in some ways it was also. Um, a reaction to global transitional justice. So um, again, indirect effects and, 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 and the transition even global transitional justice processes created a much wider interest in reconciliation, even if it was a critical one, that then spurred more um, decentralized grassroots reconciliation projects um, and peace building efforts. And you can see these in many areas of Sierra Leone, so small scale initiatives. Um, There has been much more of an emphasis on decentralized peace building and reconciliation and in Sierra Leoneans taking back their own traditions and and finding their own ways to resolve disputes and um, and also in um, reviving uh, older uh, forms of restorative justice tied to Sierra Leone's different ethnic communities and pre-colonial traditions. Um, Of course, I think... um, can also look at there the, these, these are not completely uncontroversial, so there are worries um, that some of these practices restore hierarchies that might have um, underpinned the conflict in the first place, so, but what's interesting is that there has been more of a, a local turn and a backlash against global transitional justice, and, and so we could see this as a kind of indirect impact, but um, it hasn't, um, it, it hasn't strengthened, led to a kind of a Similar strengthening of, of uh, de- processes, de- democratization processes as we've seen in Peru, but more of, of a um, turn, toor- turn inwards towards um, decentralized peace building and, and local bottom-up um, reconciliation and peace building efforts. So I think in conclusion, um, I think w- w- one thing that um, I worry about in the book is that I think the holistic turn is an important one, so multiple tracks. And, um, that, and, and, that, um, and ambitious transitional justice processes that reflect the very complex conflicts that preceded them. And I think we also need to be worried about um, institutional overstretch. Um, and, and so I make this point, especially in relation to um, truth commissions. So um, these, both truth commissions had enormously complex mandates, ambitious mandates. Um, They try to tie themselves to many different ends, so criminal trials in Peru, um, reparations, um, recommendations for government reform. Um, The Peruvian Truth Commission had the most ambitious reparations program of any truth commission um, so far. Um, Maybe we'll see Colombia, (laughs) but um, as well as... um, broad civic participation, so the Peruvian Truth Commission was the first and only commission in Latin America that used um, public hearings. Um, That also then led to enormous disappointment because these are temporary measures and how how can they um, ensure success in fulfilling all of these aims and also are these aims intention ever. And so I think one of the striking findings in Peru and Sierra Leone is that victims participated in truth commissions um, in large numbers far before reparations were on the table. Um, truth commissions later made recommendations for reparations and then the progress in implementing reparations was slow, um, slow at best. <laughs> so, um, and, and then this today becomes one of the main criticisms of victims that um, they've been completely abandoned in terms of reparatory justice, um, but they, told their stories and they testified before reparations were on the agenda. And I think for many it had been something to testify and they felt that they were contributing to important process or perhaps they were having a voice for the first time where they'd been invisible for so long. Uh, so there was some value to either having a voice or to contributing to a historical record or collective memory and this was the first, um, the first justification for both truth commissions when they went and promoted their work. And so I think one of the things that um, I personally lean towards is, is uh, thinking of if, if this is the most important contribution of truth commissions that perhaps they should focus on this and there should be and keep the reparations process separate. And of course there will then be confusion as to how they relate together. But I think that it's inevitable and the onus will be on those setting up and running these institutions to, keep the pro- to explain the differences and, and to establish or active jurisdictions and how, how they work together, if at all. Um, and I think also we need to think much more about transitional justice and, 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 and stakeholders. So I think it's much easier to have a truth commission that focuses on, just on victims. And uh, that's what the Central American Truth Commissions did, and um, they have less of a public impact that way. But, um, but, we, but truth commissions that want to focus on perpetrators, um, I think there are still a lot of um, perpetrators slash ex-combatants, as you can argue that um, child combatants are both, are victims and perpetrators, as the Sierra Leonean Truth Commission did. Um, I think we need to think much more about how Truth commissions should do this and, and how we engage with ex-combatants. Um, the South African experience was unique, was the first Truth Commission that um, really tried to engage perpetrators, and and but it was established at a time where, 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 where the truth commission, this case was an alternative to criminal justice, and I think um, so both the the Sierra Leonean truth commission had no choice, um, so the truth commission the special court was established after the truth commission, um, so amnesty was was overridden, um, but um, the Peruvian truth commission. Um, They were strongly committed to criminal justice, so the commissioners themselves. um, They felt they came from a Latin American tradition where where they were committed to human rights and criminal justice. But they said that even if they had wanted um, to to, to provide amnesty to increase participation, um, the global context, global and regional context, um, just isn't permissive to this anymore. the, the Inter-American Court and the ICC, and, and, and they would have just had to face lots of tensions later on in terms of, 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 of looking bad when there's peril, when, when, when they' um, engage with certain audiences, and then um, different pressures come up to, to then prosecute them. So I think this is an area that still needs a lot more work um, the, the stakeholders of transitional justice. And, and then I think um, the, the, the third is um, reconciliation and indirect effects and, and the different levels of reconciliation so um, if we want if truth commissions and, and transitional justice processes in general um, can have important normative and discursive effects um, how can we best ensure that they have um, that they have an impact in these areas and, and um, so especially when dealing with sensitive subjects like like perpetrators and ex combatants so i'll stop there thank you very much